You're listening to the Mission Gathering Thornton Message Podcast, a weekly show of our Sunday sermons that give you a way to connect with God, grow in faith, and find wholeness. Thanks for joining us. Here's the message. What do you think about when you think about idyllic notions of the past or idyllic notions of your family's past? When I think about such things, I think back to Christmas 2003. Now, in my family, the Richmond family, uh, or I guess I should be, to be fair, the Richmond and Vise family, my family would spend every Christmas and a few days surrounding Christmas up at my uncle and aunt's house in the mountains of Bailey, Colorado. There, with my three sisters and my parents, my uncle and aunt and two cousins, my grandparents, and then my great-uncle Bill, we'd spend a few days in uh, this not-that-big house looking back and somehow make it all work every year for Christmas. And we did that. It was our tradition for years and years, probably 10, 12, 15 years, something, just a long time. And that all changed Thanksgiving of 2004. Now, on Thanksgiving of 2004, Karina and I had been married for only just a few months, a couple months, and we were living in the married college uh, apartments for married college students on the campus of Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. We were celebrating their Thanksgiving uh, ourselves since we didn't really have the time or opportunity to travel back home with a good friend, Cassie Thurber, and that morning, as Cassie and Karina were, I think, getting the food ready and I was watching, you know, football, the phone rang. And it was my parents telling me about, that my uncle, Henry, had been found unresponsive on the bathroom floor early that morning of Thanksgiving. And as you can probably well imagine, Really, since then, because of that, everything changed in my family. Yeah, we had one or two Christmases up at the family house in the mountains. But since that time, the family has splintered. My grandparents have passed, and I found myself really feeling unmoored, unattached, kind of grasping for some groundedness, some, some history, some rootedness in myself. And this past winter, I, I went to the old website, Ancestry.com, to find out some things about my family and where I come from, where my roots are. So I was able to trace my, uh, my dad's family all the way back to the Mayflower. I have some relative who came across on the Mayflower. And my, my dad's family, again, comes from somewhere in England, if I remember correctly. Now, as you probably know, looking into the past, into our own family's past, it can be a tricky thing. We don't always like what we come across. And this is the thing about the past. 
Humans have a way of romanticizing the past. One source I came across refers to it as psychological distancing, meaning the further we get from the past, the more we tend to like smooth over the bumps in the road. Perhaps it's a helpful human trait, but the reality is that it can make things kind of complicated for us as we move into and live into the future. I was thinking about all this, this past July 4th, to, to me, and in my mind, the most complicated July 4th since 1776, the, the Declaration of Independence. Between COVID-19 and concerns about spreading the virus, to Black Lives Matter activists and their pointing out of our really troublesome history as a nation, to many just white people simply ignoring it all. And I, I want to acknowledge that many of us white people, and I'll speak for, for white people this morning, we find ourselves in a really unfamiliar situation at this point. For so long, for so long in our nation's history, our story as white people has been the dominant story, and we've never had to acknowledge that a dark side or a different story even exists. Remember that thing about uh, romanticizing the past or psychological distancing? We've been able to psychologically distance ourselves from the really troublesome and bad, dark parts of our history. And that has advantages, obviously, for us, but it also has some real disadvantages. And hearing others speak out about our story feels like, in some ways, they're insulting our family because, I mean, in a way, it is our family. It's where we've come from. It's our roots. And this is, this is really the danger of psychological distancing, of romanticizing the past, is we really don't fully comprehend or understand where we've come from. And the more we think about it, the more we begin to understand that this, this story is complicated and it's hard to read when we have to read those stories, but for so long we haven't had to read those stories because the, the pages of the history book have been torn out or obscured. And we haven't had to deal with that own, those own elements of our story. But as one author writes, just because a page is torn off the calendar doesn't mean it ceases to exist. The presence of the past is equally evident in families, in organizations, even in nations. So we could say, hey, it was a long time ago, but as one song sings, not even two lifetimes have passed since the days of Lincoln. Now perhaps you recognize those words. It's from a song that Paul sang a couple weeks back by the Abbott brothers. 
called We Americans. And I, I was listening to the words of that song over and over again. I was thinking about my own wrestlings with the past. I was thinking about July 4th, and I was thinking about this all in the context of this message series we've been doing called Stuff We Need to Talk About. And I was thinking about the biblical character named Jacob. Now, perhaps you remember this guy named Jacob in the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. Jacob was a person who lived, who got by on trickery, deception, and conflict avoidance. He was a twin of his brother and his, his twin brother Esau. The story goes that when uh, Esau came out of the, the womb first and Jacob came out pleading to Esau's heel. And that kind, of, that kind of grasping for more never stopped in Jacob's life. When Esau's and Jacob's father, Isaac, was on his deathbed, the tradition was in that culture for the father to pass on a blessing to the firstborn son. Now, for some reason, uh, Isaac, no, Isaac's the dad, <laughs> Jacob decided he wanted to get that blessing from his father Isaac instead, and Isaac's, as Isaac's wife, boy, I get these names confused, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, was the favorite, Jacob was the favorite child of Rebecca, whereas Esau was the favorite child of Isaac. Now, as an aside, this kind of child favoritism is usually a bad side, you know, a bad sign in their relationships. And parents often favor a child or invest in a child because they don't want to deal with something within their own life. And we kind of see that complicated, unhealthy way of dealing with conflict manifest itself later on in Jacob's life. But so anyway, since Rebecca and Jacob were in this close relationship, Rebecca decided, hey, I'm gonna help my favorite son. Jacob get this blessing from Isaac, the father. So he, she helps Jacob pretend to be Esau, goes into Isaac, who's on his deathbed, and gets this family blessing. Esau finds out, and as you can imagine, is furious and threatens to kill Jacob. So Jacob runs off, he, he gets out of town, and goes to a family member in, in a foreign country, named Laban, and he meets this young woman named Rachel, and he says, hey, I want to marry this woman. And back in that time, back in that culture, uh, you had to do seven years of work, or at least that's how it worked in this day and situation. So Jacob committed to working seven years for this man Laban to have the hand of his daughter Rachel in marriage. So the seven years comes, and the Bible says that it flies by practically because of Jacob's love for Rachel, right? They have the wedding, the wedding night. Jacob wakes, wakes up the next morning and realizes that it's not Rachel he was with. It was uh, Laban's older daughter, Leah. And he, Jacob's like, hey, Laban, what's the deal? Like, this is not, this is not the deal that we made. And, and Laban says, hey, in my culture, like, I can't marry off my younger daughter before my elder daughter. So Jacob's like, fine, but I want to marry Rachel. So he gets married to Rachel again and commits to work for another seven years for the father-in-law, Laban. So during this time, they come to an agreement that 
Jacob will get a portion of Laban's cattle to kind of build his own, his own family wealth and household, whatever. Now Jacob, again, to kind of do his conniving traits, right? He comes up with a way to, I don't know how to say it other than like biohacks, so that his flock, his cattle, his herd grows and, and multiplies, whereas Laban's kind of just suffers. So eventually Laban kind of figures out what's happening and says, hey, you know what? Let's just go our separate ways. You go, take your cattle, your herd, and I'll keep mine here, but let's go our separate ways. Now, interesting about this time, Jacob learns his estranged brother Esau wants to see him again. Now, remember, this is the same brother Esau that had literally threatened to kill him if he saw him again. So Jacob, understandably, as you can imagine, is terrified. And I'll read this morning from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verses 6 through 8. So a messenger returned to Jacob and said, we, want, uh, we went out to see your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. 400 men. So obviously Jacob was terrified. He felt trapped, so he divided the people with him. And the flocks, cattle, and camels into two camps. He thought, if Esau meets my first camp and attacks it, at least one camp will be left to escape. So, kind of smart, right? Now, as this is all happening, as the mechanisms are going in place, and this is all processing out, Esau meets this stranger, and for some reason, in the story we read that we get into a wrestling match. So this happens later on in the chapter. We'll start at verse 24, Genesis 32, 24. Jacob stayed apart by himself. Again, he had kind of sent half of his family here, half his family there, and he stays apart by himself. And a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. So all night this is happening. And when the man grabbed, or I'm sorry, when the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. The man said, let me go because dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. Jacob was kind of obsessed with blessings, right? He said to Jacob, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and won. Hmm. So the next morning, after this wild encounter, Esau is moments away from meeting Jacob. And it's really the moment that Jacob has been thinking and praying and, and worrying about. And he sends out, again, his family, and he says, you know, I'm going to go in front of my family. Perhaps, perhaps his boldest, most courageous move as a person of someone who's been living on Deception and trickery and conflict avoidance. He goes out to meet his estranged brother Esau. And this happens in verse, verse 2 of chapter 33. So again, it says that Jacob put the servants and their children first, Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself, Jacob, went in front of them and bowed to the ground seven times as he was approaching his brother but listen to this. Esau, the brother that Jacob was living in mortal fear of, Esau ran to meet him, 
threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Completely the different meeting that Jacob was expecting. I mean, that was not all what Jacob was expecting. And really quite a dramatic, dramatic conclusion to this really convoluted and complicated story. But I was thinking about this story, I was reading this story, I, I went back, these words of the verse in chapter 32, verse 28, really kept resonating in my mind. He says, then he said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men, and won. You've struggled with God and with men, and won. It got me thinking. Is there honor in the struggle? But Jacob didn't win as we think about it. In fact, he came across wounded permanently. Like the text says that he limped for the rest of his life because of the results of that wrestling match. And it's not kind of a clean, clear-cut victory that we would expect when we hear that someone won a match or an encounter. And it made me wonder, like, as much as we'd like it to things to be clear and concise and clear-cut, like, is just doing the best we can, is that enough? As I think about my own family's past, as I think about Jacob and his past, his family history, I'm of the opinion, at least, that we cannot make peace with ourselves until we make peace with our family and our family history. That's what I see happening here with, with Jacob and Esau. Like, literally, Jacob was wrestling, it seems like. He was wrestling with all this the night before he was to meet his brother Esau. He was wrestling with it, trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. He was wrestling with God, perhaps we might say. Wrestling with God's spirit within him, working in his life. I want to say that as, as white Americans, again this morning, speaking to white Americans, we cannot make peace with our own selves until we make peace with our family history, we might say. Now, it's not that we need to abandon it or romanticize it or replace it. Rather, I think we just need to wrestle with what it is to accept the truth of what it is and just to deal with that as it is. And I think as the story of Jacob shows us, like we're never likely to come to a real conclusion. Like there's no going to be real any winner or loser and we'll probably come away wounded. But that's okay. I believe we find peace not in romanticizing the past, not in ignoring it, or dismissing it, 
but rather in embracing it. And I'm not saying we need to embrace the white supremacy, the hatred, the prejudice. But we need to say, this is my family's story. This is a part of who I am, whether I like it or not. And part of my growth as a person has been coming to terms with the fact that my idyllic family in 2003 wasn't nearly as idyllic as probably I would have remembered it to be. There was a lot more conflicts and discord and dysfunction than I remember. And I, I think tragedy, tragedy has a way of revealing what's kind of already always been there. We're really seeing that right now with COVID in that COVID has exacerbated the systemic and societal injustices happening right now in our nation. Like there's a reason why Hispanic and Latinx persons are getting COVID at such an astounding rate. Like it's not by accident. It doesn't just happen. And I, thinking about tragedy how, as a way of revealing all this makes me wonder, like, is that what apocalypse is all about? And I know in, in American culture, like in popular culture, apocalypse kind of means it's like dramatic ending of the world, like, you know, those 90s, like Armageddon movies and Deep Impact. That's what we think about apocalypse. And I wonder, like, maybe there's some, there is some disaster element to it, maybe in actuality, but it's not just the disaster that's the apocalypse. In reality, what the word means is a revealing, and I wonder if maybe, like, that tragedy or that disaster has a way of pulling back, pulling back the layers, those, and revealing what's been hidden, that injustice, that dysfunction those real, real problems of the past. And again, I'm not saying that embracing our past means embracing white supremacy or injustice or prejudice. What I'm saying again is that embracing our story means saying, yeah, this is, this is my family. Like, whether I like it or not, this is where I come from. This is true. In telling the story of my family, telling the story of my nation means I have got to tell that story too. And if I'm not telling that story too, then I'm not telling the true story of my family. And just as it is with our own personal families, there will be love in our hearts and pain in the memories. Just as there is pain in the memory of my own, my own emotions in my heart, in my head, as I talk about Christmas of 2003. And I believe part of becoming a healthy, functioning adult means being able to hold all that intention, being able to wrestle with it, to live with it. And there will always be a deep appreciation for where I come from, for my family as a Richmond, 
as a as a bias as my mom's family is, there will always be a deep appreciation for that. There will always be a deep appreciation for me as an American. But there also will be a deep pain. A deep pain as we acknowledge and I acknowledge my family history, my nation's history. And I have to wrestle with, you have to wrestle with, we have to wrestle with that deep pain and the appreciation and to find some peace in that discord, in that wrestling. Rejecting our family, like that's not healthy. Trying to pretend that our family was the perfect, idyllic, loving family, that doesn't work either. Whitewashing, whitewashing over our history does not help. It's, it just doesn't work. Wrestling with our family, wrestling with our history, wrestling with our nation's history is about appreciating Yes, appreciating those of us who have gone before us, but acknowledging their mistakes and seeking to do better ourselves. As Jacob's story teaches us, I believe, we can only grow when we are willing to wrestle with and confront the mistakes of our past. That's where true growth comes from. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for us as a people, as a nation, that we would have the community, that we would have the courage as a community to do so. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mission Gathering Thornton Message Podcast. You can watch our weekly services on Facebook Live every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And to learn more about joining a group or serving with us, visit our website at mgthornton.org.